Woke up this morning into my car to start my day. First stop is my buyer, who six months ago walked away. When I arrived, he treats me like a commodity. Give me a speck on his inner connect, he wants price and delivery. And if we're over $20, he tells me this business we're gonna lose. He's got a singing that old, don't know value. And then the uh, one, actually, one question before we get started is, uh, like, do you want to go into like, how do you want to go into my, I don't know, just go into my background? Like, what's the best way to kind of introduce like? All right, here we go. Welcome to the Value Clarity Podcast, where we talk about customer perceived value and all the ways that elite companies and all the things elite companies do to put value at the center of their operations. Today, I am really thrilled to have Justin McCarthy. Uh, Justin and I met uh, both a job ago for each of us, uh, back when I was a consultant for the big sales training company, uh, when Justin was uh, the leader of a sales performance initiative at one of the world's largest uh, commercial flooring uh, manufacturers. And uh, we've kind of kept in contact. Justin kind of has had a bunch of roles over the last 20 years at, at that company. And, uh, is now embarking on some new stuff. So, Justin, welcome. Welcome. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate you having me, Beth. So, I gave you the quick. I gave the quick overview. But why don't you kind of walk through your journey, and uh, we'll kind of kick that off. Kick it off from there. Tell us a little bit about your journey, uh, some of the roles you've had, and um, where you think you'd like to go next. Sure. No, I appreciate it. Um, I think, as you mentioned, you know, the last 20 years, right, is probably, probably the best way to put it, right, is, you know, it's amazing how fast a decade goes, let alone two decades, right, uh, as we've talked about, right? But, uh, you know, I spent the last 20 years in, I'd say, in different, you know, we'll call it individual contributor selling roles, sales leadership roles, sales management roles. Uh, and then also over the last, you know, handful of years, I've had a lot of, of uh, experience on, on kind of what I would call the selling system side, the revenue, the entire revenue side of the P&L, where, you know, sales operations, kind of, you know, B2B, B2C, um, some online roles. I've done some, a handful of different global roles, some strategic account roles. Um, but it seems as though I've kind of graduated through the last 20 years as to, you know, being an individual contributor, carrying a bag, and then just, you know, naturally in the sense of, you know, thankfully working hard enough to get promoted to become a leader of people um, in various different roles. And then a couple of years ago, when you and I kind of first met, that's when I, I kind of, I kind of would say I transitioned back into that kind of an individual contributor role in a sense where my job became to have, you know, less and less direct reports. And it was more about global influence and helping a global organization move their global systems forward. Uh, that was, that was kind of when you and I started to spend our time together. Yeah. And uh, that's kind of where I spent the last handful of years. I was in global accounts prior to that at this, at this company. And then I, since I already had that kind of global perspective, it was, it was kind of a natural fit to move into that kind of so what at the time we called it the sales effectiveness role. You know, in other companies, you might call it sales enablement. Um, but at our company, we called it sales effectiveness. Uh, and my job was kind of to drive sales performance, as you mentioned, you know, globally across the enterprise. Um, and since then, as you mentioned, we've talked about it, graduated to the next opportunity, if you will. Uh, and now I'm kind of, you know, providing some of this insight and experience that I have to, to other companies and other consultants that I've been working with, um, you know, 
just as I try to make, how do I make, you know, magic happen or make some, I hate to use the word, make some sausage out of all the experiences that I've had in the last 20 years. Well, so. you know, uh, I have, I've had a bunch of different experience in a bunch of different industries and I didn't realize until I looked back at it through the eyes of all the experience I had rather than trying to look through the eyes of a maybe a hiring manager who saw all these different industries as something bad um it has been a real gift that my my history has forced me into a bunch of very different industries to apply my craft in um electronic components in telecom gear in telecom services right financial services and then uh in the in the Miller Hyman role, um, helping clients in all kinds of industries. I, I think those first sets of experience um, made me the a, a really great generalist on value, but focusing on value, not on an industry. Yeah, and, and actually, I had an interesting discussion this morning around, you know, when you're focused on something, I don't want to say the word is like ambiguous, like value, but it's so aspirational and it's constantly changing that the diversity of your experience allows you to better address this kind of moving target that's that, that you're talking about, right? Yeah, yeah. If you, I think if you'd seen value um, in an industry and then you got it and you looked at that, tried to look at that same value through the lens of operating in another industry and then a third industry, suddenly you're able to filter out what's true. You're able to filter out the nuggets uh, that are the true core versus how we do it in an individual industry. And that's, I mean, it, it's been fun. Um, and it's, it's fun that people are starting to, to recognize that and, and hire me for that. And um, it, it's been fun having conversations with you on that. And here we are, um, we're recording this in the middle of July of 2020 and we're struggling with coronavirus and civil unrest and, and uh, wondering what's next and how the world has changed. And um, I thought maybe we'd talk a little about what's, what's in the future for sales organizations. And, um, you know, you and I had this conversation uh, about how so many sales performance and sales effectiveness experts are giving salespeople assembly line tools, um, scripts, and this action at exactly this time, and choreographing activities down to small nuggets and putting dashboards on activities. And I'm wondering if that's the way of the future or if uh, we're going to turn a corner and see sales professionals as knowledge workers who have uh, a profession and a craft that they have to perfect. Yeah, it's a, it feels like it's almost like two different scenarios, right, that you're talking about, right? But I, I think that's a really good, I think that, you know, if you go back to selling organizations of the future and, and kind of what we've seen, right, is I think one of the things that this crisis in particular has, has you know, metrics are important, but, but, but metrics are only, activity metrics are important if, if I would say, I don't, I don't, I don't want to go there too quickly, but like, if you have low trust in your organization, then you drive a, a lot of high activity metrics, right? Yeah. But 
if you have a high trust in your organization and you guys are dedicated to creating those customer perceived value, that customer perceived value that you're talking about, then I think that your, 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 your metrics will change because your metrics become more about the, the say the, the relationships you've built or the, in, the impact that you've had, as opposed to the inputs that you've created, you know, whether or not you've made enough calls or had enough meetings. Um, kind of my next thought on that is that, I think industry-wide, industry-specific stuff, right? Like I look at the SaaS community and the technology community, right? And when you build your organization, and this is what I saw in particularly my last set of roles, right? Is, you know, if you started your, if you were an old manufacturing company and you started your selling behaviors from an outdoors perspective, right? You have people on the street, hey, we got a product, we got to sell, we're making it in the factory. Get some people on the street, carrying it around in the trunk of their car, knocking on doors, Right. So you kind of start with an outdoors mentality, right? And, and then that outdoors person then has to go out and create their persona and meet with the personas in their marketplace. And that information moves its way to the edge, right? So the value there and the, the, um, the knowns, if you will, are on the edge of the organization. But in other industries like the tech community, right, where I've got a great service or I've got a great product in a sense, but we're gonna start it from an indoors perspective, right? We're gonna own the marketing, we're gonna own the narrative, and before we put people on the street, we're going to have an entire inside selling organization, right? We're going to have SDRs. We're going to have business development people. And guess what? They're all going to be indoors. And in that instance, I think the playbook, if you will, I'm kind of taking this back to the playbook scenario, right? Is what are the plays you want people running and how relevant are the plays if the expectations of the customers are changing or not, right? And I think that's really interesting because I think you can pivot quickly in a, from a software and from an indoors perspective, I get the sense that you know, if you've got a really good playbook and you've got a really good script and you're doing as much volume as you're doing, you can iterate fast, right? You can make changes on the fly really quickly. But when you're an outdoors organization, you create a bunch of KPIs and metrics, they almost become antiquated the day that you put them on the spreadsheet because it'll take you that long to go get enough touch points and enough information and then bring it back to update the system. So if we go back to the selling organization of the future, I think it is a touch on the activity-based side um, and, and the right metrics, but I think a lot of it, it all has to be founded in, as we've talked about, right, continuous improvement and this desire as an organization to have a tremendous appetite for learning. Learning internally from your own processes and then also learning from the customer continuously that allows your story to be focused on them, more customer-centric, but allows your organization to be more agile as their story changes. Because yeah. I think that's what this crisis is teaching us, is that the way in which I sold yesterday and what the person that I had a relationship with thought yesterday, there's a really good chance that that's not what they think today. And it's not based on their working from home or what the variables are there, but also their organization's ideas are changing right now at the same time. And quite frankly, many of them don't even know where they are yet. Yeah. So that kind of leads us to you know one of the things i wanted to talk about is the learning organization and um you are there's there's kind of two models when you've got assembly line salespeople who are just told to have activities um the learning has to be done by executives from the middle from the very much from the inside of the inside of the inside out and if you have knowledge workers and you trust your salespeople, 
they're constantly gathering information and you can also, an alternate vision is to create an organization that learns from the outside to the salespeople in. And I think that latter model is going to be a lot more agile, is gonna get a lot more of the nuance, but now you've got to rethink a lot of your systems to say, how do we have systems and processes that capture that, that respect the fact that people just found something new, uh, that we're gonna have to change something, that people change it from the bottom up and we've gotta collect those changes and broadcast the great changes that happen. Um, and it's, it's kind of the difference between early industrial revolution uh, assembly line where you are a mindless set of hands and today's assembly line where we have Kanban and continuous improvement groups. And which model of sales performance do you want to be involved in? Yeah, it's, it brings up a great point. And I, and I think, you know, I've, I've brought it back you know, repeatedly, right, is it all starts with the culture of the organization, right? Is that I think you need both. I think that the answer is that the business of the future needs both, right? Is that the, the organization has to say, this is who we are, and we have a low enough ego to know that we don't know everything, and we're going to constantly learn from each other number one, right? And so in some cases, you know, in some models, right, you're, you're collecting data internally in a sense, right, from your CRM system or from whatever it is. And that's really where I think the tech community is taking sales operations. A lot of that sales operations model is to garner that information, to analyze it, figure out what the trends or, or things are, and then experiment and beta test and then try to push improvements out to the front lines, right? Yeah. Um, but I think in some of those kind of old manufacturing models like I've worked in, in a sense, right? You know, you have this extended sales force that they never saw their job as data collectors. They never saw their job as somebody whose job it was, their job is to close the deal. They didn't see their role as, it's just as important for you to be an investigator as it is for you to be a seller and to close the moment, right? Yeah. Um, and I think it's really a continuous loop of both systems working together, yeah. but it's going to take a lot of, especially in some of the traditional organizations, it's going to take a lot of, of work to get the culture. First of all, the culture needs to agree that from the top to the bottom, we're all in this data collection business together in a sense. Right. And then we're all going to, we're all going to, we're all going to agree on how we're going to digest it and and then redistribute it. Right. In a sense. And yeah. I spent a lot of time working on that in the last couple of years is, how do we turn our how do we turn our ex extended sales force on the ends of the organization? How do we how do we get them excited about every nugget of information is important? Bring it back to us. Put it in the system. Let us anything that you think is important. Um, because oh by the way, I respect you as the seller because this goes back to your earlier point, right? Is I don't think it's assembly line so much as threading the needle. Your ability to thread the needle. Your ability to be the closer at the right moment at the right time with the right individual influencer, that's what I'm going to pay you for as a seller in the future. Right. Yeah. You know, this, you're going to be that, I hate to say it, like almost like a strategic account manager or strategic relationship manager where you're primarily a data collector, but then you're going to be, you're not going to be an assembly line worker because the nuance of your job and your market and your part of the world with that person. And when you're the tip of the spear, that's where you're you're going to be the best that that there is. We can't we can't automate that because it changes every day. Yeah, you know about three different. I want to take this or this in about three different directions. 
One, I just want to remind everybody, right? You, you worked for a flooring manufacturer. You sold commercial carpet and people are finding all this insight. And uh, I'm sure the people who are selling, you know, high tech SaaS uh, software, you know, enterprise software are saying, what can I learn from a carpet sales guy? Um, but A, I hope you've figured it out by now that this guy's got a lot of insight and B, Justin, give us like 30 seconds of how complex that buying environment is for a product that you think is this incredibly commoditized carpet. Yeah, so it's a, it's a good point. Thank you for bringing it up. And actually, just for everybody's sake, I also have been on the receiving end of a bunch of technology companies trying to sell us, right. um, you know, CRM technology or ERP technology or you know, the plugins that, that, that we all need to have. Right. So, you know, a, I've, I think that's where a lot of, I've experienced a lot while I've been training a lot in a sense. So it's kind of all coming together. Right. But I think one of the things that particularly in the, the flooring, but let's just call it the building materials category, right? Sure. If you look at the building materials of the construction, whether it's residential or commercial construction industry, um, the number of players involved, the number of influencers that you can have, um, it's really, it's a fairly dynamic sale where it's not always as easy as saying there's this one person that buys this or, Hey, I only sell to the distributor, right. As we've talked about, yeah. you know, in our world is any, in any given deal or any given situation, there could be one person or there could be a 20 bot person buying committee or more in a sense. Um, and then also the power and influence can shift along the way from person to person, depending on what department, what division what building, what floor, what facilities what, manager. What you know, company? What I mean, company. You, you, get, um, you get 20 different people in four or five different companies. Yes, and then that's the other part of it. Not only is it dynamic within that company, but a lot of the companies we work with, a lot of the end users that we work with where the product finally goes on the floor, they have subcontractors, if you will, that they work with in order to get all that work done and to manage it, right? Yeah. So in any given construction project, you know, you've got – you got the owner, the occupier, the builder, the developer, the general contractor, the subcontractors, the distributors, you know, you have the architects, you have the designers, you have the people within each of those groups have groups, right? And so it's one of those things where it's a very, if you look at the, you, you and I use the field of play concept, right? If you look at the landscape of all the people in any individual deal, very rarely are there two deals that are the same, even for the same quote unquote end user that you might be working with. Because the way in which a big tech firm, without naming any names, might manage their headquarters location in California, it's not the same way or with the same group of people that they might even manage their office location in Texas, let alone in another country in some other part of the world, right? And so it's very rarely is, are any two deals the same. Boy, so, that, yeah, that, that argues for a knowledge worker sales person, not, not an automated set of uh, uh slaves to the CRM process. Yeah, you can. I mean, you know, and I think, I think there are, there's, there's this marriage of, it's like anything else, right? The more and more you can automate, the more and more that you can use technology to your advantage, I think you can take more and more of that off the seller's plate, if you will, right? Yeah. And I'll use an example, like, you know, if, if we have, and when we did the math, if you look at, this is something that I think people also underestimate is the number of relationships you have to manage internally while you're selling and pro to providing the value to the external set of influencers, right? 
you know, so in any given deal, we used to talk about, you know, there's at least 10 or 20 people in any given deal that you need to work with collaboratively in order to make it work. Right? And that's, that's inside your company. Or no, about 50, 50, I'd just say, say 50, 50, for as many people as you identify externally, you probably have the same amount of people internally because of the complexity of the sale that you need to work with. Right. So you can pretty easily identify the people inside the company that you need to work with, but you know, outside the company, we need you to look for it, but also we can supplement that investigation with technology today, right? Sure. You can use the different, you know, uh, I don't know, name drop, but you know, LinkedIn sales navigator, there's other investigation tools that are out there that allow people to, to say, okay, who are the people that I think work at that company that I need to get to know to put in the buying committee to find out who's really in the buying committee or not, right? Yeah. And so I think there's, there's some automation that can take place, but I think ultimately what will happen is more and more technology will come out that allows that knowledge worker, if you will, to get more precise, become less of a generalist and more of an expert, if you will, in, in providing that customer perceived value and closing those opportunities and preparing ourselves for what we hope is that renewal opportunity. Yeah. Behind it, right? Yeah, I love that vision because now you've got uh, a knowledge worker who's expert at using a lot of technology tools, but the thing that they're going after is understanding the perceived value of their offer with a buying committee, not with a person, but you have to understand your value. And that's a multi-person brain surgery that that sure. knowledge worker is doing. And that's, it's not a trivial thing Be, because, I mean, for, for multiple reasons. One, the amount of technology that we can bring to, to, to bear to make the drudgery part of that job uh, less burdensome, but the increasing number of people you've got to talk to and the depth of the conversation that you have to have because they have, that those the people on the customer side have self-informed and you've got to add value at each conversation. You've got to have a conversation um, my friend Tim, Tim Rethlake says that um, your goal for every one of those conversations is that that person, you walk out of the room and they, they think, I would have paid to have this conversation <laughs> yeah. with that salesperson. That's how much value you have to add. You have to be worth so much more than the other sources of information on the internet that you're worth that much time. And um, that's, a, that's a high ideal. Yeah, and I think it goes back to, and, and it's, it goes, it, it segues into another topic, which we'll talk about in a second is energy, right? And, yeah. and, and the provision of your energy, right? And, um, you know, but you're right. So we know that the buying committees are getting larger, especially now the buying committees are trying to figure out they're changing, right? Because the, the world's changing in a sense from the marketplace to begin with, right? But you're, and you and I've talked about this before is that your equity and your credibility and your value are constantly under attack. Because it's either it could be something you don't do, for example, you know, you don't return a phone call or whatever, right? Or, but also it isn't just the internet. Your competition in most cases, especially for your larger opportunities, you know, you're in there with your other competition on a daily basis. And not that you need to worry about them, but they're providing, they're pumping information into that buying committee, just like you are. Yeah. And if you take a day off or you don't provision your energy the right way with the right people, there's a really good chance that you're not arming the right people with the confidence they need to fight on your behalf in turn. Yeah. That's really what it comes down to is if you haven't provided a right enough of value and, and it's not sitting at a high enough level in the reservoir, if you will, 
Yeah. When it comes time for those people to fight on your behalf internally, then what are they going to do? They have to feel really confident to say, no, 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 no. You're, we're, I believe in this because I believe this is the right value for the company and I know these people will stand behind us. Yeah. That's a tall order for any automated system. Yeah, no kidding. I, um, I tell this, this word story of this buying committee assembles themselves and they make it smaller than it should be because smaller groups make decisions faster. So they, and they, the client can't, doesn't know all about your product. And so they oversimplify their idea of what they're asking for. And uh, this, this too small of a team uh, starts telling sellers what they need. And the yep. seller who listens to that and responds to that and does a great job and gets answers to those pre-cooked questions has worked their butt off to get equal, to pull even with everybody else. Because any salesperson, that, that team is giving the same set of needs to every competitor. Yep. And so you're working your butt off to pull even. And if you have an added value, you don't have differentiation that says, here's what I do different and here's who cares and here's what we need to add to the team. And here's why there's a, now you're adding somebody who's an advocate for you mm -hmm. and you have to have kept the, the trust with everybody else. That's how you win. It's not by being ultra responsive. Right. Because well, I think it goes back ultra, to your point. Ultra responsive pulls you even. Well, and even, and, and also responsive, and I think it goes back, to, you touched on two things that I think are important, right, is that you can be, like, if there's a smaller committee, and this is what we've seen, right, is, is you know, they can be as, you can tell, you can over-deliver in a sense, you think you're over-delivering, right? I'm giving you all this information, I'm providing all of it, and then it is so easily dismissive, right? I mean, literally all they have to say is, yeah, I haven't heard back from that guy or, or gal, right? And then, the, and then everybody who's not working with you, who's behind the committee, says, oh, those people, like, it just takes one person in one room to say that they're not the right choice for us. Um, so if you don't go that extra level to challenge, say, the, the, the group in a sense, and whether or not you have the right people on the buying committee, and hey, is there anybody else I can help you with, right? Because it has to be about making that person look like an all-star internally in their organization, right? Um, because also that, that next party, that's where it gets really touchy and why I think you can't automate it because of that's where really good sellers have figured out how to manage the internal politics of each individual deal in a sense, right? Because that buying committee people have been chosen for a reason or not. They have their own internal dynamics and relationships that they have to manage. And that nuance of how to swim with that entire group, both in the committee and out of it, that's something that's you know, it can be very confrontational if you as a seller come in and, you know, we always talk about the old challenger sale, right? Yeah. You know, if you come in and start saying, hey, you know, with other customers, we've seen them use this part of the organization to make this decision. You know, what do you think about that? Now you're starting to challenge somebody's, say, um, authority, right? And, and, and their comfort level with their job, right? Hey, you're, you know, I'm, what I'm saying is you're not really the only guy. Or gal, right? And you know, you have to be really good at that. You have to thread the needle on that, as I said yeah. earlier. Yeah, and here's Mark, Mark Boundy's humble opinion. Um, I, when I was at Miller Hyman, uh, multiple big clients had tested their their entire sales forces and found that half of their challengers were low performers because they were annoying know-it-alls. 
<laughs> half of their challengers were high performers because they did it right. Yep. So the challenger isn't the panacea, um, but the people who do it right are the people who talk not about who you need to add to the committee, but what outcomes the customer needs to start thinking about. If I open the customer's eyes to a new outcome, you didn't know this outcome was possible from your carpeting. Yeah. Um, with one of your regional sales directors, we talked about um, a longer wearing carpet isn't just about dollars per year, it's about how many replacement cycles and what's the business disruption behind that. And customers sure. don't know how to buy business di disruption, 90% of them don't. Um, but if 100% of your salespeople start talking to customers about that business disruption, uh, 100% of customers will start thinking about it. And yeah. um, in some cases, depending on what that, what, what that floor is underneath, what department that floor is underneath, uh, that value of business disruption is worth three, four, five times what the carpet cost. Yeah, no, it brings up a good point. It actually brings up two thoughts that, that, that we may have discussed before is that, so really what we're seeing, so especially we see this, so a lot of customers have, especially a lot of end users that are going to RFPs, right? They yeah. intentionally create a small buying committee and a lot of the times it sits just within purchasing and they're in charge of the RFP, right? And, you know, you have, they invite everybody to the table that, that makes, you know, flooring, if you will. They invite uh, every competitor and, and they put out the list of criteria that they're going to look for. The people that do the best are the ones that then use that as an avenue to expand the thinking within that organization to say, I know this is what your expectations are, but have you solicited feedback from this part of the organization? Because we know that, that this is important, right? And, you know, really good example is that, you know, this is where the company that I worked at was primarily a, you know, we were never the least expensive option, right? Ever. Yeah. Yet in That's most cases- working with you. And yes, and most of the cases we were in the most expensive category, right? That of, of any of the providers that were out there. And interestingly enough, we almost always got invited to be, you know, they always an option, if you will, right? Like they never said, no, we're not using it. It was always, well, you weren't the lowest, but we got to have you, right? And what that allowed us to do was to say, we know that, and it's because we drove that value into the, into the end user's thinking, if you will, right? Um, and as we see this more and more, it's, that's where if you get the opportunity to do that, the challenge is how do you do that on, with, at a very transactional company, right? Yeah. Because it's easy on an RFP because kind of the world slows down and everybody, there's a schedule to this, this cadence, if you will, yeah. right? But when it comes into daily transactions and high speed transactions, how do you do enough of the right things to drive value beyond be, you know, beyond the people that you're dealing with. Um, and that's where we started to see where you got to really, depending on, on if you can do a quick analysis on the front end, and I think that's where assessments come in. Yeah. Where there is some things you can automate that says, hey, how quickly, what is the scorecard of the deal, if you will, which you've not, you and I've talked about is, can we do a quick scorecard that gives us some level of understanding of how fast this thing's going to move? And based on the speed and velocity of it and dynamics of it, here's where we're going to go apply our energy the most, right? Because we only got a quick minute, quick opportunity to hit this thing to see if we can knock it out of the park. Yep. Um, yeah, I love the fact that you guys used a scorecard to uh, triage deals early, to understand the most important behaviors. And this wasn't 
automated activities. It was the knowledge, specific 15, 20 categories of knowledge that you have to gather for us to make a good decision together with the customer, to make us know that it's, we're a good choice for the customer and they're a good choice for us uh, to invest our sales time in. And um, that's a, that was a really insightful tool that you guys put in place. It wasn't, and it was what I, it was what I call high-speed knowledge. Yeah. Right. Like, like if you're a good account manager and you and you you know you own your geography, if you will, this was not knowledge that was going to take you days or months to investigate. Right. It was high-speed knowledge. Hey, and opportunities. I, I've heard about this opportunity. It's laying on my desk, and within 15 or 20 questions, you know, and probably within, you know, eight minutes, you know, 10 minutes tops. Yeah. You could think about a deal and you could really get yourself positioned to say, okay, based on what we know about it or we collectively know about it, what do we think is the quick next first steps that we could go take to try to win this thing? Yep. And I think that's that, that's that kind of knowledge worker aspect of it, that the, where they bring the experience and they bring the nuances of the relationships, that it would be kind of hard to document all that in, inside of your technology or to overly automate because those relationships are changing all the time. Yeah, you know, um from my product manager days, uh, we had tools that were for a new product opportunity, for a new business opportunity. And uh, there's one tool we used that helped you identify the biggest areas of uncertainty. So there's 60 questions and there's 12 areas where we don't know yet. Three of those have about 80% of the uncertainty of this entire enterprise. And so let's not ask the 60 questions. Let's not even ask the 12. Let's spend the next four weeks going after those three. And 80% of the uncertainty will be gone once we resolve those. And we can start investing time with uh, a lot more comfortable. And your scorecard allowed you to do that. And I, I think that um, that helps knowledge workers organize their work because as much as we expect knowledge workers to do that, the discipline to keep your eye on what is the most important thing on a deal when they've got a hundred deals in their, their funnel, um, automating that or giving them a, you know, a flight checklist for that. That's super valuable. Yeah. And you brought up a, you know, you go back to organizations of the future. So I want to follow up on the scorecard thing one time. And I feel like you and I might've had this discussion, you know, over our last couple of years, right. Is, we don't want to spend 80% of our time or we don't want to spend yeah, 80% of our time talking about the 80% of the stuff that the customer might already know or that they're hearing from the competition. We want to spend 80% of our time talking about the 20% that's going to differentiate us. Yeah. Right. And you know that it's really hard to, if you don't have some sort of checklist, if you don't have some sort of a quick evaluation tool, you can very, and we've seen it time and time again, is you get sellers that, you know, the show up and throw up scenario where, you know, they roll in and they just think that all this stuff matters to the customer and something will just stick, right? You know, and look, I've only got five minutes. Yeah, I'm here. I just start regurgitating everything that I can remember that I'm comfortable with. Well, one of the things that we've solved is that, you know, your sellers are human beings, right? They get, everybody individually gets comfortable with different things, right? Yeah. So in our case, you know, some people were all about, you know, the, the, the chemistry of the material and the product, right? Other people were all about, say, environmentalism. Or some other people were all about, it doesn't matter, it's gray, and I know you need it, right? You know, like, everybody's all over the place, right? And they're not necessarily, 
there aren't a lot of sellers that are so knowledgeable and so dynamic and so comfortable across the board with everything. They, they almost always go to what is their, their one or two go, you know, go-tos, right? Yeah. And I think that's where, you know, having a pre-flight checklist and I say a score, it opens up even the seller's mind to be, because they get so caught up in all the deals because they got so many. How do they gain a little bit of elevation? And I call it detach. Yeah. Because they all get hot. Everybody gets the sweats when they hear about a new deal, right? Yeah. But hey, before you get started on trying to win that deal or execute that engagement, how about you take a step back and you take it just a just take a deep breath, detach real quickly, and then gain some perspective. What what are you observing here, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that's one of the things that 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 tool really helped us with, because then all of a sudden now you've got sellers, and I loved it because by the time kind of what we were finished with it is you had sellers that would come to you and say, look, I never thought of that, or hey, you know, a year ago I wasn't comfortable with it, but now. I love this idea of taking a step back and thinking about where I should go apply my energy because we're all overwhelmed. We all have, you know, there's not enough time in the day. We're all busy, you know, and I felt like that was interesting, but going back to organize and discipline, right? The selling systems of the future, that will be the recipe for success because there are very few industries. And I think we're seeing this even in some of the, you know, particularly with this crisis, right? Is, as, as companies prepare themselves for the crisis management of the future, they're going to do a better job of staying as lean as possible, I believe, right? Because nobody wants to let furlough and lay a bunch of people off again, right? Especially not if you become a, say, a people-centric organization, right? You know, so the organization and the seller's ability to remain organized and disciplined and only burn calories in the right areas, that's going to be a critical component to success. And if you don't have tools and you don't have the right dialogue, you don't have the right comfort to hold people accountable for that, it's going to be really hard. You're going to find yourself probably not as focused as you need to be in the future. Yeah. Justin, yeah, what a pleasure. And we've uh, gone uh, longer than my typical, but I could not bring myself to, to stop talking with you because it's all so meaty. Um, thank you. Thank you so much. It's been Great pleasure. So how can people get a hold of you to, to learn more and, and to uh, see if, if there's anything that you can do and, and share some of your wisdom with organizations? Because as you can hear, Justin has a lot. Well, Mark, thank you. Uh, first of all, thank you for so much for having me on. Uh, you know, as you and I discussed, I, uh, this is a fairly passionate topic for both of us, right? And I know that we've shared a lot of good conversations over the years. Um, and, you know, it's, it's really just been an awesome journey over the last, you know, as I said, 20 years, but particularly the last, you know, seven years has been awesome. Um, and I'm just really passionate about topic and I'm really just passionate about helping people. So that's kind of where I'm at in my career. And if anybody wants to, you know, reach out to me or connect with me, they can certainly reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, you know, I'm in the throes of trying to start up, you know, this new venture that I'm on. So, you know, I don't quite have a company website yet, uh, but the best place is for somebody to just reach out to me on LinkedIn um, I think my, my, my handle is Justin McCarthy Global, but you can find me Justin McCarthy based here in Atlanta. Although I have this, the Bay Bridge in the background, that's just my old California roots. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so it's been a pleasure. Um, you know, I really appreciate you having me on. I'm incredibly grateful to you and, and to the community that I know is your audience. Um, this is, I think it's a fun topic that we're all talking about here. Uh, and I, I think going back to your last point is that I don't think we're going to automate. We can't automate everything. It's always going to be about people, and, it, and that's the business that we're in. And I think that the more that we can put the right people in the right places with the right supplementation, I think everybody's just going to thrive at the end of this. 
Yeah. So appreciate you having me on. And uh, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to following you, following value, cl value clarity, you know, and, uh, and oh, I think I shifted my, there goes my green screen, right? Yep. The background. Uh, but looking forward to it, sir. Yeah. All right. Uh, really a pleasure, Justin. Thank you. And thanks everybody for joining us on the Value Clarity Podcast, where value only exists in your customer's mind, which means your success with your customer is all in the customer's head. Thanks and go be valuable. Well, it ain't easy because value's in your buyer's brain. If you're selling on only your features, you're going to drive over you insane. And if you ignore your customer's outcomes, you're bound to be paying your dues because you'll be singing those old don't know value This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.